beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we begin a sermon series on the book of Numbers. Chapter 1 records a list of names and numbers. So what went through your mind as we read this passage together? Did you find it pretty boring? Did you wonder how this might be relevant to your life? And how your pastor might make this into a sermon? If you did, you're probably not alone. At first glance, our text does not look like a passage filled with spiritual truths. And yet looks can be deceiving. As a society, we love lists of names and numbers as complex and seemingly obscure as this one. What we need to understand is what the list is all about and how that's relevant to our situation. Most of us have some area of life where we obsess about names and numbers. Think about sports. Some of you are able to recite the statistics about the Jets' leading players. You know exactly how many goals and assists they had in each of the past few seasons. Baseball is all about RBIs, ERAs, and on-base percentage. Those of you interested in investing know all about price-earnings ratios, growth rates, and dividend yields. When someone has a new baby, the women want to know all the particulars, including the baby's name, its birth weight, etc. We use numbers to measure performance data, a 310 horsepower engine, 256 gigabytes of memory, a 60-inch TV, a one-carat diamond. The point is that in their own particular context, Numbers matter. Our text records what happened while Israel was still camped at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. The Lord had delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand. He had given them his law so they could know how to live in a good relationship with him and with their neighbor. He gave Moses detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle. When it was complete, God came down in a cloud of glory to dwell among his people. In our text, we see the Lord commands Moses to take a census of Israel's men from age 20 and upward. Both in the ancient world and today, there's two basic reasons for taking a census. The reason why a government counts so many people there are is for taxation and for military planning purposes. Why did Caesar Augustus order a census throughout the Roman Empire at the time when the Lord Jesus was born? It was so that the Romans could update their tax records. Why did David want to count the people when he was king over Israel? He wanted to know how many fighting men he had. What's striking about our text is that it is the Lord who commands Moses to number the men of Israel. He didn't need to number Israel's men in order to be able to tax them. The Lord God is the creator of this world, the owner of all things. 
during Israel's wilderness sojourn, he provided manna from heaven, water from the rock, quail in the desert. The Lord also didn't need a large and experienced army in order to lead his people into the promised land. There's many examples in Israel's history of how a single man or a small group won victory over vastly superior forces. This morning we'll examine the Lord's purpose in numbering his people Israel. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. The Lord commands Moses to number his people Israel. We'll consider the Lord's faithfulness and Israel's responsibility. I don't know how many of you read through the Bible in a systematic way. But if you do and you come to the beginning of Numbers or Chronicles, I'm pretty sure what your kid's response would be. They would not be impressed reading a long list of names and numbers. They'd ask if you could skip a few chapters and move on to something more interesting. Yet what I want to impress on you this morning is that Numbers 1 is not just a list of numbers. If Numbers 1 was just a list of numbers, we would not have read 46 verses together. You could present a list of numbers in two columns, with a tribe's name in one, and the total number of fighting men available from each tribe in the other. But that's not how the census results are presented. First, we see how under... How under God's direction, Moses appoints a man from every tribe to help him count the people. The leaders are mentioned by name. When the statistics of Reuben are given, we're told that they are listed by name. They were listed one by one according to their clans and families. And the same applies to all the other tribes. What our text makes clear is that this census, like any other census ever taken, involves the listing of people by name. Now, Numbers 1 does not list all the men of Israel for us. It only gives us a summary. But in the numbering of Israel's men from age 20 and upward, all the people were listed by name. The point is that behind this list of numbers are many, many individual people. The people whom the Lord redeemed from Egypt are not just a nameless mass. God has them listed by name. Shows how every individual person matters to God. The Bible makes clear that God knows his people intimately now, in many different ways, our society often treats us like a number. In many different places, if you want service, you have to take a number. But, beloved, God knows his people by name. In Isaiah 43, the Lord speaks to his people Israel in the midst of their distress. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The Lord goes on to speak about how his people are precious in his eyes, about how much he loves them. In John 10, Jesus makes himself known to his followers as the good shepherd. He speaks about how he calls his own sheep 
by name and leads them out and they follow him because they know his voice. Different Bible passages speak about how the names of all God's people are written in the book of life. Behind the list of numbers contained in our text are many individual people, real flesh and blood people. One of the points our text makes is that God knows them each personally by name. Each of us, beloved, matters to God. The fact that a census is taken provides us with a little snapshot of history. Our text lists the names of the leaders of each of the tribes and what family they came from. That's important, especially in the culture in which we live. Many want to dismiss what is written in the Bible as myth or legend. They say that all that stuff you read about in the Bible didn't really happen. It's just a story made up to validate Israel's existence as a nation. But names and statistics show the truthfulness of the biblical message. These seemingly boring parts of the Bible prove its historical reliability. In our text, we see that Israel's men from 20 years and up are listed by tribe. Now think back, beloved, to the time when there was that worldwide famine and when God prepared a place for his people in Egypt by sending Joseph ahead of them. At that time, we read of Jacob, his other 11 sons and their families traveling to Egypt. Genesis 46, verse 25 says, All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. And now... Each of Jacob's sons has become a tribe which numbered thousands of people. Our text records the total number of men counted in each of the tribes of Israel. Those listed in the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Those listed in the tribe of Simeon were 59,300, etc. The total of all those listed comes to 603,550 men. Each of these men had a wife and a family. The people of Israel would, conservatively speaking, have numbered over two million people. Now, many biblical scholars, including reform scholars, have questioned these numbers. There are some significant problems with Israel's fighting men being numbered at over 600,000 men. Such a large group is out of proportion with the population of Canaan at that time. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 tells us that the Israelites were far fewer in number than the Canaanite population they were to conquer. In Exodus 23, 29, the Lord says that he would not drive out the Canaanite nations from before Israel in one year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply against them. According to Numbers 3, the number of the firstborn males in Israel was 22,273. If Israel's fighting men numbered 600,000 men, this means that each firstborn male would need to have 26 brothers, not to mention sisters. 
There's also some practical matters to consider. The Bible tells us that all the Israelites could gather around the tent of meeting to hear Moses. It tells us that they all marched around the city of Jericho seven times in one day with enough time left to fight a battle. Such things are impossible with over two million people. At the root of the problem is how we understand the word used for a thousand. This Hebrew word originally referred to a herd of cows or oxen. Its meaning progressed to include a group of people living together like a family or even a small army division. From there, it took on the meaning of 1,000. It's likely that when the census was taken, Israel's men were listed as so many groups of fighting men and that later this was understood to be so many thousands of men. Yet biblical scholars have not been able to come up with a definitive explanation for this. I raise this issue because I want you to understand there are some problems with respect to the very large numbers recorded in our text. Almost every study Bible or commentary you read on numbers raises this issue. We need to be sensitive to the fact we don't have a full understanding of how many people actually came out of Egypt. We know that the number of firstborn males in Israel was 22,273. We also know that their family size was large. Because Exodus tells us about how the Lord greatly multiplied his people in Egypt. If each firstborn son had 10 or 12 siblings, Israel would have numbered around 300,000 people at that time. Yet, beloved, our focus should not be on the numbers themselves. Our focus needs to be on what these numbers tell us about the Lord our God. Do you remember how the Lord first established his covenant with Abraham and how he promised to make him into a great nation? You remember Abraham and Sarah's struggles with infertility? For 35 years after God had made his promises to them, they did not have a son. It was not until they were old and Sarah was far beyond childbearing age that Isaac was born. A generation later, Jacob and his sons went to Egypt. At that time, they numbered just 70 people. What chance did they stand in the midst of one of the greatest civilizations on earth at that time? Especially when a new pharaoh arose who did not remember Joseph and what he had done for the Egyptian people in saving them from a severe famine? Israel was enslaved. And when brutal slave labor did not weaken the people, Pharaoh commanded that all Israel's baby boys be killed. He invoked a program of genocide against God's covenant people. Yet the Lord rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Lord was faithful to the promises he made to Abraham many generations earlier. The Lord had promised to make Israel into a great nation, to grant them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. Whatever you make of the numbers recorded in Numbers 1, one thing is clear. Abraham's offspring 
has become a great nation. And so we see, beloved, that Numbers 1 is much more than just a list of numbers. It's proof of God's faithfulness. It's part of a far greater fulfillment that we share in. The Lord told Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was through the nation of Israel that God caused his beloved son to be born. It's through him that he secured the redemption of his people. Jesus Christ has redeemed us from sin and death. His grace extends to all who believe in him as Savior and Lord. The Lord promised Abraham that he would surely multiply his offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Think of how the New Testament speaks of Abraham's descendants, including not just those born to him by blood, but all those who share in his faith. We are part of the descendants of Abraham, of the covenant people of God. Revelation 7 tells us about the extent of Christ's salvation work. We see the fulfillment of God's promise to make Abraham into an innumerable nation. John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. From every tribe, from all, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. In Numbers 1, the people of God could still be counted. But on the final day, God's people will be too large to hold a census. In this we see the grace and the faithfulness of our God. Brings us to our second point, Israel's responsibility. In Canada, a census is taken every five years. Our government does that by requiring people to take part in a Statistics Canada survey. Everyone is required to, to, to partake in a short form, and some are required to fill out further details. You know why our government does this? They want to know how many resources they have and how many resources they need. A census tells the government about how many people should pay taxes, and about those who could theoretically be drafted into the armed forces if that were necessary. It details what kind of roads and schools each city or region needs, and how many members of parliament should represent them. Now, it's one thing to order a census. It's another thing for people to obey, to go and be counted, Remember, a census was normally held for two main reasons, for taxation and military planning purposes. Since people like to avoid paying tax, and since there have often been draft dodgers, it's often been necessary for governments to compel their people to be counted when a census is held. Caesar Augustus ordered that a census be taken the people obeyed because this order was backed by the power of Rome. David's men argued against numbering the fighting men of Israel because they knew that their success depended on the Lord's blessing and not the size of their army. 
but they proceeded with the census because David insisted, and he was king. So what did it mean for Israel to be numbered in the time when they came out of Egypt and stayed on the plains in front of Mount Sinai? Here was an opportunity and an obligation for them to stand up and be counted. Each of the men had to decide if he was willing to be identified by name as part of the community. Each had to decide if he was willing to bear responsibility that came with being a member of the people of God. You know what those responsibilities involved? The, number, the numbering of Israel's men while at Mount Sinai is mentioned twice. The, the first is recorded in Exodus 38, verse 26. Exodus 38 tells us that each man who was counted was required to give a half shekel of silver, which was used in the consecration of the temple. If you were a part of the community and you wanted to share in the blessings of the Lord, you were required to contribute financially to the support of the work of ministry. The second time the numbering of Israel's men is mentioned is in our text. The purpose of this census was not to raise money. It was to get organized for war. Moses was not commanded to provide a listing of all of the people of Israel. He was commanded to count the men 20 years old, 20 years old and older, those who could serve in the army. There was no upper age limit mentioned. In this war, there was no exemption for senior citizens. All who could fight should fight. And the purpose of the census was finding out how many they were. The idea of a kind of total commitment that this census involves is not a popular one in the world in which we live. Many people are wholeheartedly committed to their individual rights. But few are willing to make a commitment to be part of anything that might require a serious responsibility from them. That's why so many today refuse to get married. That's why when they face struggles in their marriage, they're willing to walk out on their commitments to their partner and family. You see the same problem in the church. There are those who float from one fellowship to the next, loosely connected with those who attend there. But they hesitate to make any commitment to a local church. One of the attractions of worshiping at a mega church is that you can be anonymous, slipping in and slipping out unobserved. There are many Christians today who want to partake of the blessings that the church provides, but who are unwilling to accept any of the responsibilities of church membership. In our text, God required his people to stand up and to be counted. There's a challenge in that also for us today. Unlike some of the churches in our community, we know who all our members are. Your names are all listed in our church directory. 
But the question, beloved, is this. Are you committed to being a living member of this church? Are you willing to take up your responsibilities as a member of Christ's body at this place? If so, how does that show in your life? As much as possible, do you attend the worship services or follow them by means of the live feed? Or do you allow other things to take priority to the worship of God? Is your heart involved when we worship? Do you pay attention when the Bible is read and when the gospel is preached? Do you sing? Do you really sing with a heart of joy to the Lord for the wondrous salvation he has worked for you? Or do you just mumble along a few words because you're embarrassed to make a joyful noise before the Lord? Beloved, do you give of your first fruits to the Lord? Do you set aside an amount in your budget each week or each month and dedicate it to God? Or do you feel like what you earn is your money to do with as you like? Are you a cheerful giver? Does it make you happy to support the ongoing work at our seminary in training future ministers and missionaries? Does it give you joy to support the gospel ministry both at home and abroad? God is using the gospel ministry in our churches, our church plants, and on the mission field to gather in his people. So how much do you reckon someone's soul is worth? Standing up and being counted as a church member involves more than just attending church and giving your first fruits to the Lord. It requires you to be committed to love and care for your brothers and sisters in this church. Do you know who your brothers and sisters are? Are you involved in each other's lives? Do you have an open eye for those who are facing struggles in their lives? Are you standing alongside any of those going through tough times? We currently have two brothers under discipline for specific sins. Announcements have been made about them in recent months. You have been encouraged to pray for them. Beloved, are you doing that? There's others among us who choose not to regularly worship with us, who are struggling in their walk with God. What are you doing to support and encourage those who are straying from the service of the Lord? Each year, various people are needed to serve in the church in various ways. As elders and deacons, as members of the committee of administration, the evangelism committee and other committees, as ushers, as those who accompany our singing. Increasingly, when appointed or asked to serve, members are saying, no. 
And at times, there's good, there's valid reasons for this. But at times, it seems as if people simply can't be bothered. They feel like they have more important things to do. And so again, the question arises. In the midst of a society that promotes individualism, are you willing to stand up and be counted? Are you willing to use your gifts and talents in the support of your brothers and sisters? Your lives. The easy answer is to opt out. Yeah, beloved, there's nothing like getting together with a small group of brothers and sisters around an open Bible and encouraging and supporting each other in our walk with God. Every Christian needs this. Are you committed to finding a way to be part of a Bible study? Being part of God's people, of Christ's church, involves not just responsibilities, but also blessings. There was a reason for numbering Israel's fighting men. A war of conquest was coming. God's people were not parked permanently in the desert. They were on their way to the promised land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. In preparation for that, the Lord counts those who are able to serve in his army. Yet the outcome of the war was already established. God will give his people victory. He had assured Abraham that his offspring would inherit Canaan as their own possession. In a sense, this is a picture of the Christian life. God will achieve his purposes for us. Jesus Christ has already won the victory. All who believe in him are assured of inheriting eternal life. But God achieves his purposes through our involvement. That's why we need to stand up and be counted. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing together from Psalm 84, stanzas 5 and 6.